0: Hello pod pals, welcome back to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I am your host, Nicole Davis. How are you all doing? Obviously in the UK we had the news of another national lockdown over the weekend. I hope that hasn't sent anyone into tailspin and that you're looking out for yourself and anyone else in uh, your community, be it physically or online, that might need it. I spent a good portion of uh, the first lockdown on my own, and will mostly be doing this one on my own too. And I, I, I just found it so uplifting when a friend or a colleague checked in and asked how I was coping. So, um, you know, however small um, that kind of outreach or that lifeline might feel, I can, I can tell you from personal experience that it means a lot. The eagle-eyed or eagle-eared—is that even a thing? What's the hearing equivalent of an eagle? Maybe bat. Anyway, um, keen listeners will know that there was no episode last week. Uh, It may be that I go to a fortnightly schedule for the next few weeks. I'm just juggling a few things at the moment and also trying to carve out some proper rest time away from a computer and so I didn't manage to publish uh, an episode. It always gives me great anxiety to not adhere to a schedule even if it is one I've set myself. So I'm hoping that won't happen again and I'll go back to something resembling regularity. But anyway, on to this week's guest. Uh, I'm excited for this one because international sales isn't a realm of the industry we've covered massively on the podcast, and to my mind, it's obviously a hugely important chunk of a film's journey, but one that sort of gets maybe less attention, uh, particularly once a film is out in cinemas. We, we more often than not associate the film with its distributor or producer, um, but sales agents are the bridge between those two entities. So who better to give us insight into that world than Gabrielle Stewart, who is managing director at London-based sales agent Hanway Films. Hanway are an incredibly prestigious company who have sold some astounding films in the past decade. Uh, some of my personal favourites include Brooklyn, Carol, High Rise, Tale of Tales, 20,000 Days on Earth, The Guest, Tracks, Only Lovers Left Alive uh, and Colette. I could definitely go on. Gabrielle joined Hanway Films in 2016 and their current slate includes Matteo Garone's Pinocchio, Viggo Mortensen's debut Falling, Paul Schrader's The Card Counter and Made in Italy starring Liam Neeson. Gabrielle came from serving as SVP of International Sales and Distribution in Los Angeles for Bloom Media since its 2013 inception, and they sold films such as The Nice Guys and Suburbicon. She joined Bloom from Exclusive Media, where she worked on films such as Rush and Jin Got a Gun. Prior to exclusive media, she spent eight years in London at Focus Features International, where she served as vice president of international sales, selling films by international directors, including Ang Lee, Pedro Almodovar, the Wachowskis, Fernando Moraes, Gus Van Sant, Alejandro Iñárritu, the Coen brothers, and Joe Wright. So suffice to say, Gabrielle has a wealth of experience and insight, and I feel very privileged to have gotten to talk to her for the podcast. We cover how the landscape of international sales has changed during COVID, the difference between working in LA and working in London, being the first ever woman that has served as MD at Hanway, and plenty more. There are lots of good nuggets of advice within, so thank you to Gabrielle for sharing them and I hope you enjoy listening. This is episode 68 of Best Girl Grip. I always like to start with this podcast is kind of getting a sense of how you came into the film industry. So can you perhaps describe your path into it for me? I guess it's a little bit unusual in that I hadn't really dreamt or planned
1: to go into the film industry. My first love was theatre and when I was a teenager I was obsessed. I used to go and see absolutely everything at the theatre and I went to Edinburgh University and I really wanted to go there because of uh, the fantastic student theatre scene there and the the Edinburgh Fringe. I also have a Scottish father, so it was really, really fun to go up there and and have family around. Mm. But I started getting so involved with student theatre and got very quickly got onto the committee of the Bedlam Theatre, which was the Edinburgh University Theatre Company, directing plays, producing plays, overseeing all the productions, even taking a play of mine to the Edinburgh Fringe. That I started dreaming of going to drama school and, and, and studying directing but when I directed this play at the Edinburgh Fringe I met a director from the National Theatre and I think I finally understood the tough path that was uh, that it was I mean it's not it's not like doing your favourite job out there it, it's Really vocational. It's very uncertain. There's very little job security, and I, I think I got I got spooked. I wanted something a little bit a little bit more secure as a career. So I spent two three years working in TV when I graduated as a researcher. I did lots of observational documentaries and sort of reality TV type things, and I didn't like it very much. I it, it didn't fit with me, and I think overridingly because I just what I'm passionate about is story. And so a friend of mine who worked, uh, who was actually the receptionist at recorded picture company Hanway Films, oh, wow. <laughs> at the time, who I did a lot of, I'd done a lot of theatre with at, at Edinburgh Uni, said... I don't understand why you're not working in film. Why don't you go in film? And I said, "Oh, I don't know. It's I have I don't know anything about it. You know, it just seems like this world that I don't know anything about." And he got me he said to me, "Look, come and come and chat to people at, at Hanway." ironically, Hanway. And I did. And it's one of the big failings of our industry. I don't think we communicate all the different job paths and careers that you can have in film. And I knew nothing about international sales and distribution. And I came out of having a chat at Hanway Films with a sense of what that was. It was very kind of them to welcome me and talk to me about it. And I suddenly realized that it could be an interesting way to film for me because I spoke languages. Mm. So I'm half French and I, was, and I did a degree with Spanish and Portuguese. And so actually I was quite useful being a fluent French speaker. And, and very quickly I managed to get a job as the sales assistant at Renaissance Films. And five, six months later, I was at my first Cannes Film Festival. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And where really, I have to say, I was a bright person who they thought could learn quickly, you know, that was literally all I was bringing to the table in terms of my film experience. But what I had was fluent French at a time when, you know, we we didn't have all the brilliantly working internet and iPhones and everything else. So having someone on the ground who's a French speaker who could deal with, you know, the equivalent of BT in France to set up the internet of the office in Cannes and run around doing restaurant reservations and sorting stuff out that was that was what i could really provide them and then i just learned on the job like everybody else and that became my career and i i never planned it that way it sort of happened but ultimately it was a love of story you know that connected connected the path to to who i was uh, i i I wanted to work with story. I had developed a sense of story through all the theatre stuff I had done. And everything I did uh, in student theatre, in a way, relevant to what I do now. Bizarrely, it's where I started training and and working with actors and running productions and, you know, working with teams of people, being creative and also raising money and all of those things. I actually realised that that had been extremely relevant to to the career I've built since.
0: Yeah, it's funny, actually, that that seems to be the case for a lot of guests is that they get their, they get their start in theatre, I guess, because it's just more low budget than film and you just have access to it. I'm wondering, as soon as you got that position as a sales assistant, did you feel like I found the career for me? Did you feel like that fit or just that, that sense of belonging happened quite quickly? And what do you think it was about sales that generated that for you?
1: I don't, I can't really remember whether I had that epiphany moment. It was actually a really challenging time because almost immediately after I started, you know, basically seven months after I started, six, seven months, the company folded. I had the big life lesson of seeing a company go under. And there were some really talented people there. I mean, the head of acquisitions who are, who, of Renaissance Films at the time was Oscar winner Ian Canning. <laughs> (laughs) Um, and you know for example he was you know he started at renaissance as well he started I think as an intern so and that's I think very typical of film as well you weirdly learn more when things go badly wrong and you're in a sort of sinking ship and you and I and I remember you know working alongside Claire Taylor who was the head of sales there as things were shutting down and helping her ring up all the distributors and, and and reassuring them and and talking to them, and, and it was, it was at that moment that it clicked that this was a small world, an international world, and it was all about personal relationships. And Claire really was like, okay, we've we've just got to make sure that we leave this company with integrity and our relationships uh, firmly in place onto the next you know, onto what comes next. You know, I've always respected this community of people, international people, who really have a love of film and who uh, rely on relationships. And I, 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 I love that. I love the fact that it's actually a very small world film. Um, and I, re- I I remember going to Cannes and realizing, you know, the entire pretty much the entire world film industry is here from every country in the world, from Japan to Argentina, South Africa, Australia, we're all here in this seaside town, looking at films, trying to make more films happen. It was just so extraordinary because I realized how actually, how small the industry was and that it was full of characters all joined together by a love of story, making things happen. And I think that maybe I, I sort of, at that point I connected to what it
0: was, the international aspect I always loved. Speaking of like international communities, I know that you spent quite a bit of time in LA, you worked for um, Bloom Media. And I'm wondering if you can speak to the differences between the US film industry, particularly LA, which I think has a certain reputation just for being a bit harder, perhaps, as opposed to the British film industry. Do you find that there's that stark difference? Definitely. I mean, I it's really funny because
1: I, before I went to LA, I worked for an American studio. I worked for Focus Features for almost eight years in London. So weirdly, it wasn't such a transition for me. I think if I'd come from a a small British indie and I suddenly went and worked in America it would have been much harder but I had spent almost eight years working within the rigors of a of a US studio working with LA and New York you know that was my life uh, I even had learned to write dates the American way <laughs> you know, all our files all our files at Focus were the American dating system even in the London office so that was my next job after Renaissance Films was Focus so I, I kind of really had my 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 biggest chunk of my career and my growth and my training was within a US studio and when I went to LA I actually moved out there to work for exclusive media first right and I was there about 18 months and that that folded It was shut, it was, it, you know, and that's the thing you learn about film. Like, you, you, just, you just don't know what's going to happen. Um, we, you know, we were working on Ron Howard's Rush, which was incredible. And there's some incredible films from people there. And, um, you know, when Rush didn't work in America, you know, the hedge fund that owned the company, which is John Demos' uh, hedge fund in Holland, just went, OK, no more. <laughs> Wrap up. And then, you know, that's when you realise who, who owns you is a big deal. So it was it at was ex- Exclusive Media president of internationals, Alex Walton, and he then said, I've got an investor and I'm going to set up Bloom. Um, and we, so I followed him and helped him set that up. It, funnily enough, I was working for Brits. Exclusive Media was run by Brits. Alex mm-hmm. Walton is British. So I went from working in an American studio <laughs> in London to working with British people in LA. <laughs> but, but definitely, I would say that the pace... And the rigor in America is, it's just, they operate at a very different pace. And certainly it was when I moved back to London, coming from L.A., I was so used to everyone doing everything on the day for the next day. Uh, there was no questions asked. That was just what was expected. And then it, it, suddenly working at an independent British company that's privately owned and has a, 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 a different ethos. I was like the mad American trying to yeah, <laughs> do quickly and expecting too, too much in terms of tomorrow. And I, I had to sort of calm down. And my colleagues were like, does it need to happen tomorrow? No, it doesn't. It can happen in two days. (laughs) So I really, I really enjoy coming back to an environment where you actually think through what are priorities rather than everything being a priority. I mean, that's how it is in LA. The pace of things is that everything's a priority, everything's important. But there's a lot of lip service, I find. So I I feel that there is, um, things are more balanced here and thought through. I also think that LA generally is a transient place. No one is from there. So no one necessarily comes to their job with a life. So many people have moved to LA to make a career out for themselves in film. They've come from somewhere else in America. Their entire lives is the film industry. So even in, in this, when they're socializing, they're promoting themselves. There's an agenda. They're trying to build their their contact base, a birthday party is also full of people you work with, that you, you end up socialising working with the same people. I do feel that, that that creates a certain atmosphere, you know, we are our jobs in LA, you know, you are your job, um, that's who you are, people want to know that first and foremost and I think my return to London brought back so, a real sense of, of balance again and that everyone here has a life as well as their job they've chosen to work in film but they have lots of friends in other industries yeah. and I think that's healthier but we're tiny you know there's a difference in scale like there's so much mm. more money there's so many more opportunities in LA it's obviously a it, it's a much bigger industry over there so you do have a sense of, of real opportunity Whereas the UK, it's a very um, it's a very small industry in comparison. But I do think that British people, as a result, uh, and also I think because in LA you're always having to justify your job, so everyone almost too scared to have their own opinion if it's different to everybody else's. So, uh, one of the lovely things about the Brits is that. If they like a script, they like a script. If they don't like the script, they don't like a script. You own your opinion. Mm. Whereas in America, you need to sound out what everybody else's opinion is before voicing yours. I feel like sometimes you can create hype over a project artificially. There is a way of doing that in LA. You can create a sense that everybody's after the same project and it's fake. (laughs) A sense that something's very hot and it's not. Um, mm. And I found that quite, quite interesting. Whereas in the UK, it's like. We
0: own our opinions.
1: It's good. It's bad. That's what I think. Uh, and, I, and I really like that about, about the UK.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't think, for instance, you could have a fire festival in the UK, but they somehow managed to <laughs> pull that off <laughs> in America. And so then how did the opportunity to come back to Britain and uh, join Hanway Films arise? And, you know, was it just the fact that you'd heard about them before that piqued your interest or, you know, why were you interested in working with them?
1: I mean, Hanway is, is, is a wonderful company. It's privately owned. It's been around for over 20 years. And it's owned by a filmmaker who's passionate about film, Jeremy Thomas. And I think that uh, when, I, when I started at Focus Features, I appreciated that I, li- uh, I was working in a company that championed incredible filmmakers, you know, Ang Lee, or Almodovar. I mean, I'm so lucky that I got to work at a company As I was building my career that worked with some of the great filmmakers at a time when James Seamus and David Lindy were at the head of the company. Um, So I think that ever since that time of working under James and and David, I realised how important it is to have uh, someone who's highly, highly respected by filmmakers and who has a true love of film at the head of a company, because that then becomes the ethos of the company. And Hanway Films has a huge respect for film and a love of film and a love of filmmakers that comes from Jeremy. And it's privately owned, so unlike Focus Features, which is part of Universal Studios, right. <laughs> NBC Universal, it's got a real independent spirit. For me, it was always a company I greatly admired and Jeremy someone I greatly admired. I needed to come back to the UK. My mother was... Terminally ill. That happened whilst I was living in LA. So I needed to. I needed. I needed to move back. Very hard, as I said earlier, to find big, a lot many opportunities in the UK. So it was quite daunting to think. Right, I mean, things are happening for me in LA. I, I've really progressed in my career and doing interesting stuff. How am I going to find a job that's as stimulating in the UK? There aren't that many. <laughs> mm. um, but I happened to be in London in the summer and. Torsten uh, Schumacher, who had my, my, um, my role at Hanway before me, had just left to set up his own company. And so a couple of people I knew at Hanway spoke to me and Jeremy himself called me and invited me to come and chat at his office. And so I did. And I can't really say it was an interview. It really was a chat. He's such an amazing man. He just said, I work very instinctively. I have very strong instincts. And uh, I really feel that this... Actually, he said to me, I really feel like this this company needs a woman now. And I've heard a lot about you. I've spoken to a lot of people who know you. Uh, and I feel like you're right. How about it? I mean, it really, really wow. was that simple. Um, and it really took me back. And we just, in the end, just talked about films. And it just felt very natural. And um, I had a job. And then he said, I'll move you back to London and told him about my mother. And he said, take all the time you need. And it was just like I was
0: handed a gift. And then, I mean, that was interesting. So you're the first woman in who's ever, you know, been in that role. I'm wondering if that changed your approach at all? You mean that role
1: at Hanway? Yeah. I mean, it it was a challenging moment in the history of Hanway. Hanway had been around for a long time. But when Torsten left to set up, in effect, the competitive company, competitor company, uh, he also was joined by a few key members of the Hanway team. Um, mm-hmm. So a few people uh, from, from Hanway followed him into his new company. That presented both a challenge and an opportunity. The challenge being, I had to come in and not just sort of figure out. A new slate and how I was going to do things, but I had to hire new people. And hence the opportunity, because I think it's really, it probably would have been so much harder for me to come into a company where everyone felt they already had a way of doing things. I didn't have to face as much as that as a result of being able to hire a new team. I was able to hire a new head of sales, a new head of marketing and distribution, and a few other people. And so it was an opportunity to really bring fresh teams to the company and really not reinvent, but find our own way of doing things. So that, so that was a huge challenge, especially in terms of what I was also going through personally, mm. losing a mother, but probably perfect timing because I needed to throw myself into a job and perhaps I overdid it somewhat and became a bit of a workaholic. <laughs> it was an opportunity create a new team and and think about well how are we going to enhance this wonderful brand our way probably wasn't easy for Jeremy because it was his company from you know years back and so change can be quite hard but I think that he's been excited to see a new team make something out out of his company so it's it's been uh, an amazing experience in, in that respect.
0: Now seems like a good time to sort of dig into what your job actually entails and what you're responsible for, you know, particularly, as you said, not many people know the various kind of different roles that there are in the industry. Can you perhaps, you know, shed a bit of light on what it is you actually do within both your job and in the context of perhaps Hanway and international sales?
1: Well, I guess the big, the big thing I had to learn or figure out is, you know, going from just working in sales... <laughs> to being responsible for the over the overall picture. Uh, and that's what it is. You are you are kind of master of the big picture. Um, and you obviously responsible for choosing and taking on certain film projects and backing that up with a strategy for them. If we're looking at the role of the sales agent, it's a really interesting role and it and it's it's the reason why I've I've enjoyed working in this role for all these years that you can be involved from a very early stage in the project, setting it up, launching it into the marketplace, working out what you need to achieve during production and making sure that all happens smoothly. And then you have to work out the best place to launch the film, maybe what festival to launch the film at. You know, you have to get all the distribution for the film and then you have to deliver uh, an international campaign to your distributors, oversee all the the releases the timings and represent the filmmakers and the financiers and you're basically the the bridge between everything you are the bridge between creative and the bridge between between business and and finance you you are you know you you are part of the pr you are the marketing you're the launch you are you you're literally like the midwife of this film <laughs> that's what it feels like <laughs> So really wonderful to have the opportunity to to think about and that for me is is the starting point you know you are as you take on this film as the managing director of, of a sales business you're thinking about okay what is the overall strategy for this film and then you manage all the different teams who will be working on it whether it's from a sales perspective a marketing perspective a pr perspective a finance perspective um, so you're you're joining all the dots, and you're making you're you're the guardian of the overall picture and strategy. Mm. And you obviously get a lot of credit when it goes right, but you also have to take the blows when things go wrong. Um, and that that's the hard part. That can be really scary sometimes. Mm. You know, if you your opening your film is opening night of a film festival, uh, and then suddenly as the film is playing, you realise that the critics are going to pan it have to sit there and say how am I going to manage this how am I going to manage my sales team so that so that they're they're supporting all the distributors that they have sold the film to, and how we're going to manage this? How are we going to manage the filmmakers, mm. the director? How is the director going to respond? You know, yeah. unfortunately, not every film you you work on is uh, gets good reviews, and so that that's that's you know, so when you when you have a triumph, you get to put your face to it. When things go terribly wrong, you've got to hold everybody's hand and you've mm. got to keep everyone motivated, um,
0: and that's really hard. Off the back of that, I'm wondering then, when things don't go to plan, how do you retain confidence in your strategy and your instinct?
1: You know, not every film goes to plan, you know, and so it's a question of, and everybody knows that, we're all in on it, not every Mm. film's a hit, and everybody knows that. Filmmakers know that they're not going to make only films that are hits, and every so often they'll have a dud and sales companies know that distributors know that we're all in it together so you just have to accept that and and have as many hits as you possibly can Mm -hmm. so it's a question of just if things don't necessarily go to plan or or the film doesn't turn out as well as it everybody hoped then obviously you adapt the strategy so the strategy evolves (laughs) And you think about uh, ways of marketing the film and you think about the timing of, of, of when to release the film or, or it's about, but it's teamwork. So forging strong allies with your key distributors and together figuring out, you know, the best plan for the film. But also I think it's important for a director to feel that, you know, you're there for them, whether the film's great or the film has problems, you know, you're, you're still going to do your best.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're not going to abandon ship. Yes. I also saw an interview you gave, I think it was with BAFTA Guru, and you um, spoke about how men typically push harder in terms of, you know, salaries and promotions. They'll kind of just go after it or ask for it. Um, Is that something that you had to overcome personally or, you know, teach yourself how to do in order to get to where you are now? I think I learned that I wasn't good at it.
1: Or or I really struggled with it, and now I'm see I'm seeing. Generally, I feel that innately, women just feel that they need to prove themselves before they receive or before they're promoted, Mm. and they should be paid what they deserve. And men are much better at at pushing for more and feeling like, "Pay me, and then I'll deliver." (laughs) I I don't know if it's. I mean, we could have an entire debate about this. You know how we're raised. Mm. I remember seeing a talk that Jermaine Greer did where she said men are told every day by their mothers that they can do anything. Mm, mm. Imagine what would happen if fathers told their daughters that every day and it just doesn't seem to happen, you know, that was the sort of short version of what she said. But I do think that we've had to push and fight so hard and every generation I think it gets better Mm. and every generation we have better and better examples From the previous generation to to fall back on but you know still today I'll go to a major meeting of industry people and 10-15% of the people around the board table are women and it doesn't matter whether it's male female any minority finds it harder to speak loudly you know (laughs) whether whether it's religion or race or male female or whatever it is you know if you're in the minority it takes more effort to be heard. I think that's the thing. Until we're, there's total parity, we'll always slightly have a sort of, I need to prove myself.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I just find it interesting because particularly like my generation and kind of my peers and my friends, I think we just find it so difficult to breach that conversation of, I feel like I should be earning more, but also just people don't talk about salaries as well. So you, ne- you never know what is normal or, you know, what's, what's standard. So it's always just such a tricky conversation to have. I'm also wondering uh, what kind of manager you feel you are, you know, is that something that, again, you had to learn or that came quite ex- instinctively to you? And, and did you have anyone else that perhaps you look to as inspiration or any mentors that you felt guided you in that arena?
1: I don't think there was anyone in particular, but I... I feel like I've learned, I mean, I hope that I've learned certain things from different people who've managed me, or I've learned what what I don't want to be. <laughs> I'm, I think I'm still figuring it out. I don't think I necessarily consider myself yet a great manager. Uh, as I mentioned before, I came from the American system, which was everything's urgent, the rigour, the, the having to prove yourself constantly. is The studio system's tough and the demands on the junior staff are incredibly tough. And I came with that baggage and that baggage perpetuates itself in these companies and in LA. So I was really excited about coming to a company where that wasn't the ethos, but I carried that baggage. So I think I I can be quite tough and 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 I've put more pace and rigor I think into the company and partly it's because I want us to I've seen what it takes to compete with the Americans I've been there mm. so I wanted us to be able to compete with the Americans and for us to get business from America and I feel like I, I that's something I've managed to do I we're working with a lot of American projects and I I've, I've brought I brought the fact that I worked in LA and I and I, I and I understand it So I I think I have a a tough side and I push people, but I I hope that I create an environment where people can make mistakes and do have a voice and where we're able to try things and where we, as a group, think things through and talk about things and and everyone can contribute their ideas and thoughts to a strategy. I mean, one of the things that I really... I learned actually from Alex Walton um, when I worked with him at Bloom is before going to a market he always felt it was important that we really heard the vision of the director that everyone the most junior person who's going to be selling the film Mm. uh, should hear the voice of the director so that when they're pitching the film they can say the director thinks this Mm -hmm. and I I thought that's really important and I've carried that with me I, I don't I don't you know the studio way is you know oh, don't expose the director or anyone important to the the junior staff. But that's wrong. And actually, working with filmmakers, they love knowing everybody. They love knowing the whole team. They love feeling like the whole team has had a chance to hear their vision and that they've met the team that can represent them in the market. So... And that kind of goes towards you know our love of filmmakers and working with good filmmakers. They get to work and know the whole team and and we're super collaborative and, and you know, we're working with Vigo Mortensen on his debut as a as a writer director. And um he he knows everybody and, and he'll email junior people directly because <laughs> he he needs something. He do, does it doesn't it doesn't he doesn't feel like he has to go through me. I haven't created that environment where The director should only talk to me. And that is something that would never happen at the studio. And I love that. I love that we can present ourselves as we're your team to every filmmaker and we're all available to you. And I think there's so much more investment and motivation within the team. I hope I've created that environment. I'm constantly making mistakes. Managing people is so difficult. Uh, and the hardest thing is mo- keeping everyone motivated through tough times. Mm-hmm. And of course, this COVID year has been really, really tough.
0: Given that you just raised, obviously this year has been particularly difficult. Can you perhaps touch upon how the landscape of selling films has changed in that context and how Hanway has adjusted to that?
1: I think we've actually been been really good at adjusting to it. I think that we very quickly rose to the challenge and decided that having to do markets online remotely um, as opposed to meeting face-to-face in Cannes, Berlin, wherever that we had to use it to our benefit so we thought through what it, what opportunity it gave us the opportunity was we probably could access talent much more easily at no cost online and we could not just meet one or two people from a Company who have travelled to a market um, in terms of distributors, but we could market our films, sell our films to everyone at any company. With that in mind, we made sure we created a really great online platform, Hanway Pitching Room. (laughs) (laughs) So we had the ability to do meetings online in our Hanway Pitching Room, show video footage from films promos articles artwork everything just just a click away and we could show people things so it meant that any you know multiple people at a distribution company could just log on and be part of the meeting and can being the first uh, example of an online market mm-hmm. we basically we had virtually shot the whole of Paul traders card counter Um, They had to stop shooting with five days to go, which they then subsequently managed to do in the summer. But what we were able to do was a live online discussion with uh, the help of Deadline. Um, We did an online discussion with Paul Schrader and Oscar Isaac on Zoom, and we invited everyone to tune in to that and to submit questions in advance as well. And everyone who RSVP'd from any distribution company um, logging on, then got a link afterwards with footage uh, that we'd cut together, a, a promo footage, and we did it a few days before the official on virtual market started, and it was incredibly effective. It's quite something to sit there and have Oscar Isaac and Paul Schrader on a <laughs> Zoom directly talking about the experience of making the film and. You know, we sold out on the film and we did a big deal with Focus Features who took the US in multiple territories. And during Toronto, we launched international sales of Brian Fogel's documentary, The Dissident, um, which will be released by Tom Altonburg's Entertainment in the US. Mm. So we were able to do something similar where we, we spoke to Brian about the filmmaking process. I mean, he made a documentary about Jamal Khashoggi's murder with footage no one had ever had access Mm. to before from Turkish intelligence. So it's the most extraordinary piece of documentary filmmaking. So to talk, to get an interview with him about the filmmaking process Mm. was fascinating. And, you know, we own that interview. So immediately it's an asset for our EPK, which is great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But we also, we recorded a Zoom conversation between myself, Brian Fogel and Tom Wartenberg about the US release plans. And so, to be able to go to distributors and say, here's the trailer, by the way, here's the US distributor talking about their release plan, their positioning, and how they're going to be um, planning a big awards campaign for the documentary in next year's Academy Awards. Mm. Um, That's fantastic. It's making it a direct, direct contact between any distributor in the world can listen to, in the US, distributors talking about their release plans. So, I mean, online markets are never, ever going to replace what it's like to be at a market, meet, talking to people, going for drinks with people, bumping into someone at the right time. And the wonderful sort of pressure cooker of, of a market where distributors see their competitors or hear about films, or you know, can can chat and talk with distributors that they have similar tastes to in other territories, because mm-hmm. that often, you know, they often will say, "Oh, what do you like?" You know, and talk. So all of that is kind of missing. But let's find the opportunities, and and, and uh, certainly um, being able to to zoom Oscar Isaac into
0: people's. Yeah, the ideal scenario to come out of COVID. (laughs) I'm also interested in, I mean, you touched upon it earlier when you sort of said you came from LA to London and maybe threw yourself into your work a bit too much. And I know it's, it's just a very hectic job. As you say, there's markets every year, you know, seven or eight that maybe you attend, lots of travel, lots of hours, particularly if you're working international, you know, you're fitting in a lot of time zones how do you prioritize that and also set boundaries for yourself so that you're not working all hours of the day cuz i imagine you could be
1: well it's hard i'm still learning i would say i, I when i first started the job at hanway hired new people and was figuring it out you know it's not like i'd i'd been managing director of a company before i was really yet again learning on the job i did too much myself so it's been a process of learning to delegate more and more and more mm. but also as we grew as a team you know you start to understand people's strengths what people do well uh, or if they've learned something new from you maybe then they can then take it on so it's been a process of it's a, it's a sort of pyramid i learn to delegate they learn to delegate like as we mature as a team and get better and i think that critical is always doing a post-mortem after a film perhaps or definitely after each market so whilst it's still fresh what what was great what did we do well what was successful what was a disaster or what wasn't so well done and as a group right down to the assistant, say this was good this was bad okay what do we want to do better next time so I do think that if you do that you lighten the load eventually because you're just chipping away and you're realizing, okay, we don't actually need to spend time doing that. That wasn't worth it. That worked. work. Let's just keep doing that. So I think, I think it's a, it takes time. And as a team matures, you want to just keep getting better and more efficient and champion things that work well. And also listen, when people give you negative feedback, like, you know, I've, I've sometimes taken negative feedback, on something I've done. Um, and I think I think it's important to allow people to manage up as well as manage down. I think that's recognising that's, that happens. I've had to manage up a lot in my life and, and you have to allow that to happen. It's helpful and it's healthy. The more I felt comfortable in the role, the more I've just allowed delegation and I've allowed also, I've had to learn that not Everything has to be perfect. So to identify kid okay, that has to be perfect, that doesn't have to be perfect, it just has to get done. But personally, I'm I'm I would say that I'm very sporty, and what I never compromise is time out to play tennis or do some exercise. That gets put in a diary and it's solid. The best AFM for me, where I was in a good mood i was doing well i I was just personable and happy and and that was good for the team was when i i found a little group of of international buyers and we got up early and played tennis before the market opened (laughs) in the morning (laughs) like it like at eight seven thirty in the morning oh wow we would play some tennis there are some very very good tennis playing And we all agreed that that had been our best AFM because you spend all day in meetings inside. You've got the view of the beach in Santa Monica from your window. You don't (laughs) get to go on it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Soul destroying. (laughs) But um, like me, uh, having that, that game of tennis in the morning at 7.30 just changed our lives and how we felt about our
0: day and our energy levels. And then I'm wondering if there's a particular film or a particular filmmaker that you're proud of having championed at Hanway and kind of brought to the market?
1: I'm very proud of almost all our all our films in different ways. And every film is a journey and, and ends up being your baby. But on a personal level, I think that Made in Italy, written and directed by James Darcy, his mm. his debut, that's very personal to me because he and I are very close friends. <laughs> He's one of my best friends. And so we, we started, uh, I started, you know, guiding him on the script before I even started working at Hanway. So we were both working in LA. He was shooting something in LA and I was working in LA. And we start, I started out giving him advice on the script. And then it kind of really started coming together. And I went to, I moved to Hanway. He happened to be back in London too, and I brought the film in for us to do as a project hanway and now it's out there and it's doing really really well so I feel like that that is a that is a project that i nur- you know that I nurtured from a long time ago, and I managed to make a film with one of my best friends it's his first film it's just, it's proving a real success, and so I'm particularly proud of that one because
0: mm. um yeah it feels it feels very personal for me and it comes back i guess to it being about the relationships and that being of you know great importance and then finally i'd love to hear from you what you think is a film by a woman director that is an undervalued gem that perhaps you wish more people had seen baby teeth by shannon murphy i think
1: is an incredible tour de force because to get the tone right on that film to film about a dying girl and yet you're moved you laugh the tone is so spot on and the performances are so great and it's beautifully shot I think it's an amazing film a uh, big shout out for baby teeth but you know we're about to announce and um, probably when this is broadcast it will have been announced but that we're coming on board Sia her debut as a writer director oh, wow I am telling you she is a very talented filmmaker
0: I mean, if her music videos are anything to go by, I yeah, I believe you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's a it's a really special film.
0: Called Music, starring Kate Hudson. Ooh, that's piqued my interest. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. It's been fab to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nicole. Thank you for downloading this episode of Best Girl Grip. You can find all my previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. I'll be back next Tuesday with another wonderful guest. Until then, have a lovely week.